We are in the series, Luke. And what we're doing, we are investigating the life of Jesus through the first century book of Luke. And so as we do that, we've gone all through since the beginning. We started uh, before Christmas. And as we continue on, remember last time we talked about Jesus called some of his first disciples, um, which was Simon Peter, uh, Andrew, his brother, James and John, who are also brothers uh, to each other. And then uh, we talked about that. We talked about him calling a tax collector, which is very unusual, considered the enemy. Uh, that was Matthew. And now Jesus' ministry is becoming more and more well-known. He's becoming more and more popular. More and more people are flocking to see him. And he's staying sometimes out away from the cities and people are just flocking to him. Uh, but he's also experiencing more and more opposition. And the next thing that happens as we're in Luke chapter 6 today is that Jesus and his disciples are, are walking and they're traveling through a field, a grain field. And as they were walking by, some of the disciples were grabbing the heads of grain and stripping them off and then rubbing it to get rid of the shaft and then popping it in their mouth and eating it. We call it trail mix, you know, but that's what they were doing, just going along and they were eating. And actually the law allowed for that. You could glean off a field that was considered okay. Nobody considered that theft or anything like that. But some Pharisees saw Jesus' disciples doing this and they confronted him. And they said, you're violating the Sabbath. And what had happened is, we talked a little bit about the Ten Commandments last Sunday. And of course, keeping one day holy set apart from God is in the Ten Commandments. But what had happened since that time that Moses received the Ten Commandments before the 40 years wandering and entering the Promised Land and all that stuff is over the centuries, religious leaders have piled more and more and more regulations as they defined what God said. So there was God's law, keep the Sabbath holy, but then men and their traditions over the centuries just piled on all these regulations on how to do that. So the Pharisees are watching his disciples and going, all right, you're walking by stripping grain, that's harvesting, and then you're rubbing it, hey, that's, that's work too, processing it, and eating it. And so hypocritically, they're saying, that's a violation of the Sabbath. And then Jesus responds to them, side note here, if you've been with us a few months and you're with us in the life of David, he actually brings up an event that happened in David's life that we talked about which was when David was on the run from Saul, when he was hiding out. Some of you are going, what are you talking about? Just hang on. This is just for the David people. If you're here, you know, they, he was running from Saul and they didn't have food and they needed food. And then he stopped at this one place and it was where the tabernacle was, which preceded the temple, a movable tent that had all the temple stuff in it. And he went in and he stopped by the priest. They didn't have any food, but there was a showbread in the temple that nobody was supposed to eat except for the priest after it was a week old and it was removed. And he went in there, got the showbread and ate it and gave it to his followers. Okay, so that all happened. Jesus says, hey, don't you know about what David did? And they're like, yeah. And he said, you know, David did that. And then he, and, he, and he's by implication, not wrong what we're doing. And then he said, hey, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. 
So that kind of shut them down for a while. They didn't know how to respond. Later, a little while later, Jesus is teaching in a synagogue. He's teaching there, and there are scribes and Pharisees there in opposition to him. And in this particular synagogue, there is a man with a withered hand. So he's got a problem. And they are, these scribes and Pharisees are there in the synagogue, and they're very suspicious, and they're keeping their eye on Jesus to see what he's going to do because this man's here, to see whether he's going to heal him, because if he heals him, that's a violation of the Sabbath because that's like doing work. So they watch him. And sure enough, as Jesus is teaching, Jesus says, points to the man, says, get up and come forward. So the man comes forward, stands before Jesus as he's teaching in the synagogue. Everybody's tuned in. The scribes and the Pharisees are like, what? And then Jesus turns, this man standing in front of him, he turns to the the scribes and Pharisees and says, is it lawful for man to do good or do harm on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to, you know, help somebody or hurt them, save a life or destroy it? And they don't answer. They're, you know, they probably have learned by now, maybe it's a, a no win when you try to answer Jesus. But so they, they don't say anything. And then Jesus seeing, you know, their attitude, which is he better not do this. He, he just turns back to the man and says, stretch forth your hand. And the guy's healed. That, that act caused outrage among the Pharisees and scribes, and they, at that point, start plotting how to get rid of Jesus, how to end his ministry. After that, this is all Luke 6. Are you with me? All right. The next thing is Jesus goes up to a mountain to pray. This is near the Sea of Galilee. And he goes up there, and he prays all night long. And Jesus has a bunch of followers called disciples following him, hundreds And they're following and they're waiting. And then as Jesus comes down, he chooses from this group of people called disciples, 12 disciples that he will call apostles. We call them disciples, but in the text, there's a slightly different word. The the 12. And so he calls them. And some of them we already know because we've been introduced to them by Luke. But he says, okay, Simon, who Jesus named Peter. And then Andrew, his brother. And then their partners, James and John, brothers. You know, we've, we've already covered those. We know who they are. But then that's not all. There's Philip and Bartholomew. And then there's Matthew, the tax collector, which is kind of weird because he's against, you know, he, he's considered as, as a betrayer of all the Jewish people on Rome's side. So people are surprised at that. Thomas, and then another James, not the brother of John, but James, the son of Alphaeus. And then Simon, not the Simon Peter, but a different Simon, uh, who's the zealot. And this guy is an apostle who's the opposite of Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew collaborates with the occupying force. Simon, the zealot, is all about overthrowing the occupying force. They're opposites. And then not only that, Judas, the son of James, not to be confused with the 12th man, Judas Iscariot. Bad luck for Judas, right, to end up with Judas's name, but whatever, you know, that's the way it happened. Two Judases, two James. And so he picked the disciples, or the 12 apostles, I should say, out of his 
crowd of disciples. As he's coming down the mountain, he finds a level spot, a fairly level ground. We'd call it a plateau or a table. Looks like this. You can go there today where we think this happened near the Sea of Galilee. And then he gives the most famous sermon in all of history. Matthew calls it the Sermon on the Mount. Luke calls it the Sermon on the Plateau or the Tableland or the Plain, but not plain like we think of plains, but a flat spot kind of in the hills. And Matthew's is longer. It's like three chapters in Matthew, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. And Luke's is much briefer, which I'm sure you'll be thank, very thankful of. It's just like half a chapter six. So Luke narrows it down. Neither one of them say everything Jesus said, because even Matthew's, you could read that in about 10 minutes. But they're both recording what the Holy Spirit led them to record of Jesus's sermon. And so we're going to look at Jesus's sermon out of Luke. And it starts with something called the Beatitudes. So how many of you have heard the Beatitudes? You've heard of them, yeah. How many of you know what the Beatitude, you know, what does Beatitude mean? It's kind of a weird word, like, it doesn't make any sense. Beatitude, what? It just means blessing. Blessing or happy. You know, be blessed, be happy. You know, and then, as Jesus starts with these Beatitudes, he starts explaining the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. And so everything he says in this section of his sermon sort of makes no sense to us as we see life playing out. But God's calling us to a higher value. He basically teaches us, Jesus does, that in, in his kingdom, there is a reversal of values from the world's values in his kingdom. And so this is how it starts. And it starts out that there are four blessings for his disciples. And so this is the blessed are, and Matthew has a few more, but with Luke, it's four blessings for his disciples. His, his disciples who are poor, hungry, who weep, and those who are hated for Jesus' sake. So we're gonna pick it up in Matthew chapter six, verse 20. Are you ready? Yes. All right, verse 20. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, not the 12 apostles, the bigger group of the people who are wanting to hear from Jesus, wanting to learn from him. He began to say, blessed or blessed are you who are poor. And Matthew uses some different language here, poor in spirit. Basically, this is the word here, poor, means that you are destitute to the point that you're totally dependent on somebody else. And it has the spiritual connotation to that. Blessed are... are you, uh, blessed are you who are poor, spiritually poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. What does that mean? That means we have to be spiritually poor before we can even understand what it means to be a Christian. Before we can come to God and ask for salvation, we have to be spiritually poor. We have to realize we are desperate. We are despondent. We have no way of helping ourselves we cannot erase one of our sins. We cannot help ourselves spiritually. We need outside help. We're desperate and we're turning to God because of that. Blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. He continues. Blessed are you who hunger now. 
for you shall be satisfied. And again, this has a spiritual connotation of hunger, that you know you need something, you hunger, you want something, that you're missing something in your life, primarily spiritually. He says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh because of the hardships or whatever, or you're broken over your sin. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. If they hate you and ostracize you and scorn you because of what you're doing for Jesus, he's saying, be glad in that day, verse 23, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, their fathers used to treat the prophets. He's saying, hey, are you being mistreated because you're following God with integrity? Hey, have joy in that because that's exactly how they treated, their fathers treated God's messengers in the past, is what he's saying. And so he continues with now four woes. And so the woes, it's, the, you know, it's like good news, bad news. Blessed are you or woe to you if, and so now the woes. And woe just means sort of pity or pain. Woe to you. You know, there, there was a character on TV that used to say, what, pity, I pity the fool. You know, pity the fool. It's basically what he's saying, pity the fool. You know, it's a warning. It's a call to repentance. Don't live for what those outside in the kingdom live for. The world's values here are being reversed. Again, most famous sermon in history, verse 24. But woe to you who are rich. And, and he's talking, you know, material wealth is considered, but this primarily sort of material wealth in the first century, if people were wealthy, then everybody, including them, they thought, oh, God really likes me. I'm set with God and God's blessed me and God only blesses righteous people. So only good, righteous people have wealth. That's what they thought. So that, woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. He's saying, if that's what you're thinking, if you're thinking self-righteously because of your wealth, and by the way, we're all wealthy. If you're thinking self-righteously because of your wealth, that's not gonna cut it. Yeah, you, that's good for you now, not gonna be good for you later. Verse 25. Woe to you, pity the fool to you who are well-fed now. And that's satisfied in their self-righteousness. Hey, we're well-fed, we don't need anything, we're good to go. You know, I'm not hungering for anything, life's pretty good, everything's great. Self-righteousness, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, kind of smugly enjoying your superficial morality. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. So he's kind of flipping everything around. Then Jesus gets to the central focus of his teaching. So hang with me here. The most famous sermon that's ever been given. Imagine you being there. You're hanging around. You're on the edge of this plateau. Sea of Galilee is just below you. Jesus is giving the most important talk that has ever existed in all of humanity, in all of history. And now he shifts into the core of what he wants to talk about. And he says, 
This is the focus. And he basically is going to call his followers to radical love. Radical love. Love like we've never understood love before. And it starts with love your enemies. A disciple's love, it's not ordinary. Verse 27. But I say to you who hear. And again, I say to you who hear, meaning, hey, you people who want to hear what I'm saying, if you're eager to hear me, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Now, when we hear that today, we're like, yeah, love your enemies. Yeah, I've heard that a lot. Yeah, Jesus said that. Everybody knows Jesus said that. Love your enemies. And, and we just kind of, I think, put it in another category. Yeah, love your enemies. Yeah. One of those Jesus sayings that, you know, really hard to do, don't really understand that. What he meant by that? What he meant was love your enemies. That's what he meant. And we've heard that before, but if you were sitting there in the first century on that little table plateau of ground hearing that, you've never heard that before from anybody or any religion. Love your enemies. Well, that's the opposite of what we should do. Why would we love our enemies? And by the way, a lot of times our enemies are God's enemies. Why would we love them? Love your enemies, that makes zero sense. Nobody does that. Nobody. And then, so they're thinking, what would that even look like? What do you mean by that? How would we do that? And then he describes it. Continuing in verse 27. Do good to those who hate you. You know, gotta be, people gotta be thinking, do good. Do good to those who hate me. Why would I do that? It doesn't make sense. It's not natural. It's the opposite of every fiber in our being. Do good to those who hate you. He continues, bless those who curse you. You know, at this time, you're probably going, whoa, 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 time out. This is not natural. How would we pull this off? Nobody does this. Well, how we pull this off is that we have the power to pull this. We'll get to that, how we pull this off in verse 35. We're gonna get there. How, how to love like this. We get that clue later. And then continuing verse 28. Pray for those who mistreat you. And the people gotta be sitting there going, wow, pray, pray for those who mis, mistreat me. Because if somebody mistreats us, we usually react in two ways. The two natural responses. First is, Revenge, right? You mistreat me, I mistreat you. You attack me, I attack you. Revenge. But then some of us have been a little bit Christianized and we realize we're not supposed to take revenge. God says he'll, vengeance is his. We don't need to take revenge. Don't take revenge. So then what we do, the second way is we just blow it off. We let it go. I want us to go a little deeper on this. So we can take revenge, it's clearly wrong, or we could blow it off, let it go. Forget about it. The trouble is, I think, and that's okay sometimes, let it go. Sometimes there's slight things that happen and nobody realizes that's an offense. We need to let it go. But there are other times when somebody's done wrong to us and we just let it go. And it's not so much that we're doing that out of love. It's doing that because we're lazy. Because if we really love them and we wanted what's best for them, we might just stop Take the time, and before we do this, we have to make sure a couple things. Make sure that we've forgiven them. Not only that, but when I say forgiven them, I mean make sure that we've drained all ill will for them out of us. And then we say, hey, you know, you did this 
and, and that was offensive, but you know, I forgive you, no big deal. But I just want to point it out. So when you do this to somebody else, it's going to cause you a problem. You see, I think sometimes we let it go, not because we love people, because that's the easiest thing to do if we're not taking revenge. But what God's calling us to do is something a higher level, or it's deeper than that. It's love them. And so to love them, it's like if they've done something wrong to us that they may repeat to other people that's going to be a negative force in their life that we forgive them, drain all ill will, and then we have the talk, the harder talk, and say, you know what? This is a problem. The Bible calls that speaking the truth in love. On staff here at Grace, I call it, some of you have heard this before, love first, lead second, always do both. If you're going to be a leader, a pastor, or a leader at Grace, you have to love first. And most pastors love first really well. But that's not all you're supposed to do. You also have to lead Lead means telling them the truth. Lead means pointing them the right direction. Lead means not being lazy. Lead means help them with the truth so that they can be better. So you love first, lead second, but you always, always do both. Because if you're only loving and you're not doing the rest, you're not loving them like you should love them. Does that make sense? Love first, lead second, always do both. Or if you want to say it biblically, speak the truth in love. Verse 29. Jesus continues. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Yeah, people got to be sitting in the grass going, what? Somebody hits you, offer him the other cheek. Now, here's a couple things we know. This does not mean that we can never defend ourselves. Well, how, how do we know that? Because later in this same book, Jesus tells the disciples, one time he sends the disciples off, he says, don't take anything, you know, don't, don't take anything, just go. And people will provide your needs. But another time later in his ministry, when it really got dicey, he told his disciples, okay, you're gonna go out and hey, by the way, if you don't have a sword, get one, buy one. He's not saying we can't defend ourselves. What he's talking about is when we suffer insults. Notice it's hit you on the right cheek. Most people are right-handed. Well, to hit them on the right cheek, that's either a left punch. But what it is is, you know, it's that. It's an insult. It's a public insult. It's a slap in the face. You know, and it's, it's a personal offense, a personal insult. That, that's mainly what he's talking about. When I was a kid in middle school, junior high, um, I was kind of the new kid around. I was in southern New Mexico. And in southern New Mexico, during recess time, the cool guys, they went off to one edge of the property and they played stretch'em. Okay. Okay, and stretch'em is actually a game you play with knives. So everybody had a folding knife. A Barlow folding knife was the cool thing to have back then, which just has two blades. But pull out the big blade. You got the Barlow. And then you stood toe-to-toe. -to -toe. Has anybody played this? Stretch them. So, okay, there's a few, yeah. So you stood toe-to-toe, -to -toe, and there's a whole bunch of guys doing this. And then you got your knife out, and then you flipped your knife, and if it's stuck in the ground, then that guy would have to stretch his foot there, pull the knife, and hand it back to you. 
then you would flip it to the other side. And then the first person, and this is by making it stick in the ground. If it lands on the ground badly, you don't have to do it. But then when you couldn't stretch anymore, you won. Everybody get the game? Yeah, so play that sometime. It's just weird because we were actually, you know, a bunch of guys playing with knives back then was okay. Nobody thought anything about it. Now you can't bring one to school. But anyway, I don't know why I told you all that because it didn't have that much to do with the story. But anyway, we're out there playing stretch them. And somehow I offended kind of the leader of all the guys out there. And I don't know how I did it. Don't know what, I don't have a clue. I don't think I stabbed anybody in the foot because that happened once in a while. You know, I don't know, but this guy squared off with me and wanted to fight me. You know, and I was clearly outclassed. This guy's bigger than me, older than me, everything than me, stronger than me, tougher than me, you know, the list goes on. He's the leader. You know, there's about 20 of us out there. And I'm new. I don't know this guy from Adam, but everybody else knows this guy. And this guy wants to fight. Well, what nobody knew is I had actually become a believer recently. I was in my church at Calvary Baptist Church in Roswell, New Mexico, and I heard a message, and I realized the gospel, and without telling my, and I was there with my mom and my brothers, and without telling anybody, I gave my life to Christ. And so, I didn't know much, but now it's a few weeks later, but one of the few things I knew is that Jesus said, turn the other cheek. So we're standing there, and this guy kind of squares off with me, and, you know, I think he's expecting me, like any normal person would do, is to run away. You know, go head over for a teacher, you know, or something. But I didn't do that because I'm like, okay, what would Jesus do? And so I just stood there. I'm not, you know, anyway. So I, I stood there. And so he squared off. And then he had a few things to say to me. I don't remember what that was. And then I'm thinking, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, wow, so I'm just going to stand here. And no matter what he does, I'm going to not retaliate. Like he's saying all this stuff, I'm going to not retaliate. Not that retaliating would have done me a whole lot of good anyway, but we're standing there. And all of a sudden, wham! He hit me on the side of my head. That just about took my head off. It didn't, you know, I still was standing there. I mean, I didn't like fall or anything, but it, it I felt like my head was coming off. And so then, and then he just stood there, and then I just stood there, toe to toe, looking up at him. And then I'm thinking, wow. So I did it. So this is it. He hits me, I don't do anything. Again, not that it would have done a lot of good. You know, I'm, and I'm just going to stand here. I'm just going to offer the other. And I'm thinking, I actually, you know, so basically what I heard Jesus did, this is what I, bam! And then he hit me again. Which I also was still able to just stand there. And then he just kind of walked off like I wasn't worth his time. You know, this guy didn't know how to fight. He leaves, everybody follows him, I'm left by alone. And I'm thinking, okay, well, that was probably a win. I mean, I, I didn't go run off, and I only got hit twice, <laughs> which that could have been a lot worse. Although it's hard to take hits without, you know, at least trying to hit somebody. You know, so I'm, but, but I had it all wrong. You see, I think I'm doing what Jesus wants me to do. But wrapped up in that is also my own honor. You know, I, I'm the new kid, but I don't want to... I know the guy can whip me. I, I don't want them to think I'm chicken. So I stand there and let him hit me and then, you know, without quite realizing it, let him hit me again. But see, I'm doing, that's not a spiritual thing because what I'm doing is just kind of like self-preservation. It's like, well, 
I don't want to be known in this new school as the weakest guy around or the chicken or, you know, I don't, I don't want the pecking order that I drop all the way down. I mean, here, I could be number two with this guy. You know, who knows? You know, it's the wrong reasons. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, let the insult go. I'm there protecting my honor. Jesus is saying, let your honor go if it's just your honor in face of an attack or an insult. It's just kind of a different thing. And uh, I wasn't loving this guy. I didn't like him at all. I wasn't being gracious. I wasn't being forgiven. Just kind of saving my own honor. That's not what God's talking about. But everybody's trying to figure it out. Wow, a guy hits you off from the other cheek. Different. Then Jesus continues in verse 29. He says, and whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks you. And whoever takes away what's yours, do not demand it back. You know, and we're going, everybody's got to be sitting there going, this doesn't seem to make sense. People will take advantage of us. We won't have anything. You know what? What's going on here? And he's talking about a, a supernatural love and how it's the reversal of all of our natural instincts. He's calling us to a higher love than we've ever seen or expected before. And in the first century, they've never even heard of this. For them, crazy talk. And here's the summary in verse 31, which is the golden rule. How many, how many of you know the golden rule? This is where it comes from, verse 31. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. He's saying, don't live for yourself. Be in awareness what other people need and what other people want. And just don't go through your life all about you. Go through your life treating others and wanting to do good for them just like you want good for you. Have an awareness. And then Jesus challenges us to rethink how we normally love. He just kind of piles it on. And next, he's talking about how his, his radical love exceeds the world's love. It's, just, it's a game changer. And he starts saying, you know, what, what if you thought about this way? Think about it this way, verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Now, when we hear sinners, we think, yeah, we're all sinners. But in the first century, and we touched on this, I think, a few weeks ago, in the first century, when they heard sinners, that's a group of people who are very far from God. You know, you had the tax collectors, Matthew, and then you had the sinners, you know, all these other people that I don't really want to go into that do despicable things, and everybody knows it. They're lumped in the sinners crowd. And Jesus saying, oh, the way you're loving sinners do that. Verse 33, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. And there he's talking about we could receive back payment, but the same amount means we can receive back. We lend to them, then when we get jammed up, they're going to lead to us. We have kind of a mutual symbiotic relationship. What's that? That's just self-preservation. That's not love. Loving those who, who love you, sinners do that. Doing good to those who do good, sinners do that. Lending to those who benefit you, sinners do that. 
And so here's, it's, it's weird because they're, they're hearing sinners, sinners, sinners. These are bad, bad people. It's weird because every religion in the world, except Christianity, basically says, well, you have the sinners, the far from God people, and then over here, separate from that, you have the loved by God people. And they're, they're separate. And so what you're trying to do is you're in this religious system, you're trying to not be so bad so that you could cheat over here and somewhere cross the line to cross into the love by God and go to heaven people. But Christianity's the only religion that says no. You here, all the way over here, not halfway, all the way here, sinner, despicable sinner, you are loved by God. And what you need to do is just admit that and realize that you are poor in spirit, that you cannot fix this yourself. You can't do anything good that takes away one of your sins. You have to totally rely on God. See, Christianity is a both. You're a sinner far from God, and God loves you. And God's offering you relationship free. You don't have to do a bunch of things before you just accept the gift. And so then, but when you do accept the gift, by the way, over here, and you haven't moved, and you've accepted the gift, God comes into your life, and slowly, maybe without realizing it, you grow closer and closer to God. That does not earn you your salvation. That's just a natural response for God coming into your life through his Holy Spirit, and you changing from the inside out. And then the summary of Jesus' standard for radical love. Verse 35. Summary, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. How do we get the power? This is right here in this verse. And you will be the sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Where do we get the power for radical love? We are sons of God. When we've accepted his gift of forgiveness, repented, admitted our sin, repented, turned to him, we are sons of God, sons of the Most High. We have the Spirit living in us who empowers us to love radically and change our lives. Of course, when we come to him and we're doing what he wants us to do, we're going to get a lot of flack. And the more vocal we are, the more flack we'll get. People won't like it. People will make fun of us. People will mock us. People will, you know, talk bad about us. And occasionally we might get slapped in the head. That can all happen. We get that. That's part of following God. But don't do all that and suffer that way just to look spiritual. Oh, look what I did. I turned the other cheek. Bam! Oh, that looked pretty good. Oh, that was weird. What an experiment. No. Suffer that because you're actually honoring God, not honoring yourself. Honor God. And notice he said the ungrateful and evil people. Who is that? That's all of us. God's merciful. 
Verse 36, be merciful just as your father is merciful. And that's the difference between justice and mercy. All of us are over here. We all deserve justice. Justice for my sins and your sins. Justice for what we've done against God. All of us. Justice is an eternity separated from God forever in hell. That's getting what we deserve. Mercy is getting what we don't deserve. So all of us here who respond to God's love, we get mercy. We get what we don't deserve. Christ takes on the punishment that we deserve, and we don't. In exchange, we get his righteousness credited on our behalf. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. He keeps going, do not judge, and you will be not judged. Do not condemn, and you'll not be condemned. Pardon, and you'll be pardoned. He says, give, and it'll be given to you, and they will pour into your lap good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it'll be measured to you in return. This, you know, if we're generous in forgiveness and with money, you know, that will be returned to us. That's what Jesus is saying. And so then after this, before the chapter ends, he tells like three quick parables and, and then a fourth one that I'll land on. The first parable is about the blind leading the blind. He says, you got blind guides leading the blind. Both are going to fall into the pit. You know, if you don't have spiritual insight in what he's talking about, make sure, be careful who's leading you spiritually. He talks about people trying to get the speck out of somebody else's eye when they've got a telephone pole in their eye. Oh, let me help you with that little speck. He's saying, hey, look to your own issues, your own problems. And then he taught about good trees and bad trees. And he said, you'll know them by their fruit. Jesus is telling us that our lives will produce fruit. And whether it's good or bad, will reveal the nature of our heart, whether our heart has been changed by him or not. But then his last parable is a call to action. He talks about the wise and the foolish builders. Here's how he wraps this up in Luke. His sermon, he says, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That is convicting. Jesus explains, verse 47, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the flood occurred and the torrent burst against that house, it could not shake it. And because, because it had been built, well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation and the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. What's he saying? Jesus is telling us, hey, the mark of a true believer is not what we say. Lord, Lord, 
I'm a Christian. He's saying the mark of a true believer is how God has impacted our life. We build our lives on one of two foundations, either what we think is best or what God says is best, truth. And if we build our house on truth, we, our foundation will never be shaken. But if we're just out there living for ourselves, we are building our entire lives on the wrong foundation and our lives will become crashing down sooner or later. It will happen. That's what Jesus is telling us. Let's stand together for prayer. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this sermon that's recorded for us. And Lord, most of us here are believers. Lord, help us to put into practice your words. Help us to love radically, love differently, love in a way where people are going, what are you doing? So we will be able to point others to you. And Father, we also know that standing with us right now today are people who don't have a relationship with you, who they are just like we were. And so God, our, our family, our friends, Lord, coworkers, people that we know standing here with us, Lord, if, if they don't know you, we're asking that you would draw them to you. Help them to see spiritually. Help them to put their trust in you. Help them to admit that they've sinned like we all have against you. But that you know them and love them more than they've ever dreamed. And you offer relationship with them forever. And Father, we pray that you'd keep drawing them and that they would respond. And if they're not ready to respond yet, Lord, we pray that you keep bringing them back we pray that you help them get any questions that they may have answered so they can put all their trust in Christ, in Christ alone. God, thanks for loving us. Thanks for your mercy. In Christ's name, amen.